Welcome to the Haber Show. I hope you all are staying safe out there. Scary times and lots to get into today on the Haber Show. This two-part episode. First with Salt Lake Tribune's Andy Larson. And secondly, we'll hear from CNBC's Eric Chemi. Andy is the Utah Jazz beat writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. He was there in Salt Lake when Rudy Gobert touched the reporter mics. He was there in Oklahoma City when the world found out Rudy Gobert tested positive for the coronavirus. Andy walks us through what that whole experience was like. Also, CNBC sports business reporter Eric Chemi will join us from the CNBC offices where he gives us the financial and Wall Street perspective on this pandemic fallout. What will happen to the NBA's business and which teams are potentially most affected financially? Eric provides his insight on that. So just a heads up, we recorded these on Monday evening, so keep that in mind as this story evolves. So we'll get to Andy first, then Eric. Without further ado, Andy Larson. Andy Larson, how you feeling, buddy? I'm good. I'm asymptomatic, so that's a good word to say about yourself, right? Yes, and I, I just saw that Donovan Mitchell did an interview this morning, said he's asymptomatic too, but he has tested positive for the coronavirus. You apparently did the test as well, but you luckily are negative. Yes, correct. Which is good. Again, which is nice. This is the best. It's the best possible outcome from a personal point of view I can have. But uh, yeah, it's it's still a little bit scary. I'm still self quarantining at home for 14 days uh, on the direction of both the Utah and Oklahoma State Departments of Health. But nevertheless, it, it could be a lot worse. Everyone at home listening to this, you have to listen to his story, his dispatch from Oklahoma City, what it was like to be covering not just Rudy Gobert in that game, but days prior, the whole setup um, at the Salt Lake Tribune. He has an amazing calm. Microphone, hijinks, backstage rumors, and all hell breaking loose. The Utah Jazz's surreal night in Oklahoma City where Andy details the behind-the-scenes uh, goings-on of, of not just Wednesday night, but the days leading up to it. And it sounds like a horror story, man. Like I saw the I saw the story of the, the the cruise ship that was quarantined off the shores of San Francisco and Japan and all these things, and then I'm like, wait a minute, what happens if this if a player in the NBA tests positive for coronavirus and just starts tapping microphones and touches everyone? What would <laughs> that that would be insane? But that's what happened. That's that's literally what happened in the NBA. Is Rudy Gobert on Monday? There's that media policy that went league wide just like hours later, but you're you normally when you talk to Rudy Gobert as a beat writer for the for the Utah Jazz, you're just standing like inches away from him with the recorder in his face, and it, you know that might seem like a uh, an infection waiting to happen. So then the Jazz decide, hey, uh, this is Monday, uh, we're gonna actually institute a new policy where you're going to sit, you know, several feet away from the, uh, the podium and Rudy Gobert is going to speak in a press conference rather than just doing the, the normal media scrum. Yeah. You might think that you're protected at that point, right? Well, the critical thing was they thought they were protected, right? Like they weren't creating the six to eight foot barrier between the media and the players so that the, the players would, wouldn't infect the media, right? It was so that the players would stay healthy from the unknown, right? The us, the other of the media. And I think like it, it's highly ironic that it ended up being probably more dangerous the other way around, right? Yeah. And, and so you're, you're in there. So this is Monday. So we're, we're yeah. 
rewinding back to Monday, how long had you been with the team and what was the feeling like as you're with the team on the ground uh, as this coronavirus story is unfolding? Uh, On Monday or Wednesday? Uh, Let's go all the way back to Monday or even prior to that when news about the coronavirus was was affecting not just the NBA beat, but your beat especially. Yeah, so they were doing they were doing the four game road trip, and you know we were we were doing these stories on okay, all of a sudden you know you you shouldn't be doing autographs uh, with fans late in the week. I believe that was Thursday or Friday, something like that uh, last week. Uh, and, and you know okay, now we're banning media and non essential personnel from the locker rooms, but it was still very much a something that you know people weren't taking seriously like as as much as you know Rudy Gobert is getting the flack for the touching microphones thing like you know everyone was given high fives everyone you know Donovan Mitchell was caught on video with this making this joke of like oh I can't give you this ball because I might have the virus you know like everyone was given high fives and 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 you know handshakes and whatever else and was you know was business as usual except for these like two regulations that um you know that the NBA had put in place so I, I don't know that it really last week as you know, the jazz were on this road trip. They, you know, went four and oh on the trip things. It, it didn't seem like a, a big deal to anyone, not just, you know, certainly Rudy made the biggest, most obvious joke about it, but it, you know, everyone kind of agreed. So who's, who's in that room. So all we see is like a couple reporters there, but yeah. paint the picture in the room. How many reporters are there? And like, was Rudy the only player that came out during that press conference? Uh, Rudy was the only player and then we then Quinn Snyder came later. So, you know, you've got the tables up front like you see in the video. And then honestly, there are probably only seven to eight reporters is all. And I think maybe one TV camera behind, you know, it was it was not a busy shoot around by any means. You know, this was and it's it's in Salt Lake City, Utah, right? Like we as jazz fans love the jazz, but, you know, we're, we're not a big media market like New York or Chicago or whatever, you know. So you're uh, so you're giggling along with it, or were you like internally screaming, like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> I thought it was like, I I thought it was a dumb joke. I thought it like <laughs> it wasn't very funny, right? Like I was there's always like athlete funny, and then there's actually funny, and there are a couple players on the Jazz that are actually funny. Like Joe Ingles is actually a funny person. Rudy's a little bit like Rudy's a jokester, but he's a little bit athlete funny. Um, and that was, that was an example, right? Like, okay, I get it. You touch the mics therefore. And you know, I tweeted this, that I, I I thought it was, I thought it was his being like joking in kind of a friendly way. Like, Hey, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to get coronavirus from you guys. Right? Like, I'm not worried about you guys. It's not that I'm trying to infect you or whatever. Right? Like I, I thought it saw it as anything as kind of a, a positive reach out rather than a negative one. But yeah, interesting twist, Andy. Yeah, because, like, you know, again, they were trying to protect us, them from us, right? So he was like, saying, I'm were... not afraid of you guys. Watch what I'm going to do here. Yeah. And and honestly, Rudy, you know, he was a nominee for the Magic Johnson Award from the Professional Basketball Writers Association last year. You know, he's which, for those who don't know, it's the award that we give out to players who deal well with the media on a day-to-day basis like Rudy Gobert has been nothing but fantastic you know I feel like I can talk to him after every game and kind of really get the honest truth of what's going on so when he was when he touched these microphones I I thought it was like him if anything kind of giving a measure of support like kind of thumbing his nose at this idea that we were separate and different people if that makes sense so after that happens are are you getting your recorder and immediately going to the bathroom or are you like taking a, a pure no. wipe down or are you just like, whatever? 
No, yeah, I'm whatever. Because, I, I mean, honestly, I, even on Monday, I still don't know how seriously I and most people were taking this. Which, you know, again, was, was a mistake on my behalf. But I probably would have done the same. Just like, haha, and then go go on a ways on my work. Like, just... And- and like you say, like we're used to being within inches of these guys and inches of every reporter always, you know, like it's just not, it's, it, it, it's not scary to me that Rudy Gobert touched my microphone at this point. Fast forward to Wednesday. Um, you show up to shoot around as I'm reading in this story and Quinn Snyder says, Hey, um, Rudy Gobert and, and Moutier are not playing tonight. Uh, and then to which you say, wait, what, what's going on? Yeah, so that was really – so I go to shoot around, and it's really the team PR rep, right, that tells me whether that they are listed as questionable for illness. And then pregame, you know, like 5 o'clock, two hours before the game when the coach does their pregame press conference, that's when I ask Quinn, hey, are these guys – these guys who are listed as questionable, are they going to play or not? And Quinn says, no, they are not going to play. Just straight up declares them out. Yes, and then, which is weird, like 10 minutes later, I get a call from a team PR again, basically being like, no, Quinn misunderstood your question, and Rudy Gobert is still questionable. And I'm like, no, he did not. Like, I have the audio right here. He said, quote, unquote, neither Rudy nor Emmanuel will play tonight. Like, you can't misunderstand that question if you're giving a sentence like that, right? So at that point, like, I immediately knew something was up. And at that point, I kind of go into, like, digging mode of, like, okay, what's, what's happening here? Um, and I did hear a, a rumor basically from someone that said, hey, Rudy was being tested for this. Um, and I, it was kind of like a third-hand source, so I didn't know whether or not to believe it. Um, oh, man. So I didn't many know. of those third-hand sources have turned <laughs> wrong or been falsified right. over the last like week or so. All the text messages from friends being like, hey, friend works at FEMA. Hey, friend works at the FBI. Friend works at Pentagon. And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But this one, you're like, well – he did just get called out. Yeah. What? Like exactly. this could be real, but you can't. And so I was, I was thinking basically at about a half an hour before the game, like, okay, this could be real. It, there's a reasonable chance here that given something weird is happening based on the status going back and forth that, you know, I, I, I thought it was like a 10 or 15% chance that Rudy was patient zero, but it was definitely one of those stories that's worth checking up on. Right. So, I, you know, go down, I go to the court to see who's out there for warmups. Rudy isn't, I go to the locker room to see if, you know, or the locker room area, I'm not around loud in the locker room at this point, but, uh, to see if there's anyone I can talk to or any sign of Rudy or any of those kind of things. And, um, you know, and eventually it's, it's actually just a couple minutes before the game. I think they, at like six fifty-five, we finally get the text that they've ruled Rudy out for the second time. And then it's really 10 minutes later that all hell breaks loose. And, you know, the, the OKC trainer comes running onto the court and letting everyone know that he's, he's tested positive. What thoughts go through your head when you find out that he's out for the second time? When he's out, when he's for the second time, to me, I think that means, okay, yeah, he, he really is sick. And, uh, you know, they don't have the test results back essentially. Like, but it, that's again, I don't at this point, that's still like a, a guess in my head that, yeah. hey, maybe it's this. But if they don't have the test results back, you know, hopefully they're not going to play him in an NBA game. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and you'd hope that they would just try to keep him away from the team, which it sounds like they were doing, which they did. Yeah. yeah. Which he was just in his hotel room all, all day from kind of what it sounds like. 
when when it was confirmed that Rudy Gobert was was positive for the coronavirus, I'm imagining a movie scene where like the you zoom in and into the text mess or the Twitter the tweet on your phone and then it just zooms out and this ominous music happens and then you drop the <laughs> phone. It's like usual suspects when he drops the mic when he or drops the mug and, and figures it all out. What was the actual scene? Like your did you look up and look to your your buddies there and just be like, uh, did you guys just see this? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the the big moment for me was when the referees started huddling and the game was delayed, right? Like that was the oh, this is this is what I think it is. And you know, obviously the the athletic report that confirms it does give a finality to it and then you can start thinking like that was a point well Shams's report was when I really started or Shams uh, was when I started to think about consequences right like but at at the point where uh, Quinn Snyder and Billy Donovan are huddling with the three referees and, and kind of talking about what's happening. I know immediately, okay, this is real. It's probably, it's one of Rudy Gobert or Emmanuel Moutier and they don't know what's happening. And, you know, I, I got to go find out what's going on. So at that point I, you know, go back down to the locker room area. They've cut off again, the, the media access to the locker room area. So I'm like staring through this window that they have in the back room of the OKC of the back hallway of the of Chesapeake Energy Arena, like watching these various executives, you know, kind of jog back and forth, talking to each other nervously, pacing phone calls, you know, that kind of stuff. And just trying to figure out, OK, what what is it that's going on here? Trying to, like, pick up any second hand, you know, honestly, eavesdropping at that point, just like it, see if there's anything I can report. And then that, you know, it's it's really at like. 20 minutes later, they tell all the fans to go home that they're postponing the game. And, you know, five or 10 minutes later after that, they that, you know, the report comes out that he's he's tested positive. Then the, the league decides like within minutes to suspend the season and the yeah. whole thing just starts crashing down around you where you're like, whoa, this just happened. This just happened here. This this is the epicenter <laughs> of yeah. of not just the sports world, but I think. The business world, uh, the the society at large, I think that's when the real dominoes started to fall. It wasn't with the Indian Wells tennis court, uh, the tennis open, the fifth major being shut down. It wasn't South by Southwest being shut down. I think it was that moment when Rudy Gobert tested positive. And you were there, boots on the ground, where you're like, wait, now what is, how does this impact me? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, honestly, I got I started to get a lot of calls and texts from friends and, you know, obviously my parents who were worried about me and, uh, uh, you know, CNN called, which has never happened before. <laughs> Wait, what does that look like? Does, did, like you know, an unidentified number pops up in your phone. You're like, oh, I take this from Atlanta. Who's this? Yeah. And, and bit, well, uh, you know, I actually I ignored their call at first and then luckily they sent a text. Right. Like it's a, I, I'm not going to answer a random call from Atlanta in the middle of this. <laughs> um, it's probably a spam call. Right. But then they they their producer sent me a text and was like, hey, can we have you on it? You know, in, in the next hour about this. And then she asked if I could get to a studio. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm in this arena. <laughs> I might have coronavirus. I'm not. You don't want me at your studio either way. Right. So. <laughs> You know, it's uh, so, you know, I did a, a phone interview with CNN, Sirius XM radio, all this, all this kind of stuff, um, you know, our, our local TV stations. And obviously during this, I'm also trying to get an article up for the Salt Lake Tribune because, you know, Tom, that's, you know, that's, that's part of it. And in these kind of crisis-esque situations, you're also trying to get uh, something up on, on your website. That's kind of the job. But when, when did it hit you? Like, oh, I got to get tested. Like, what, uh, how does that, how does that happen? Or did someone say, hey, uh, 
we're going to take care of you guys. Like we all need to, to be tested. I knew that I wanted to be tested. I knew that because we'd interviewed Rudy, because he touched the mics, because, you know, I, it's, we'd been around him for as much as we had. I wanted to get tested. Um, and so, but we, what we didn't know, um, was whether or not that would happen, right? You know, we uh, obviously it was in the news, and this was still the case that tests are incredibly limited. And if they would have limited it to just the people in the immediate locker room, I think um, that wouldn't have been a huge surprise. I would have been frustrated, and I would have liked to, you know, try to make that happen. And in fact, we did try to make that happen through the league office and you know team and PR and everything else that you know all of our contacts that we have, but. I, I didn't know that that would happen, but I did think, you know, pretty immediately after Rudy test positive, like you start thinking about all the different times that you've been around him over the last week. And it's like, okay, yeah, this is, you know, there's a real chance I've been exposed to this. You wrote that it was like doctors were tickling your brain. Yeah. The test is crazy. So <laughs> this is like six hours after tip off at this point or the, the, you know, canceled tip off. You've and done like 18 interviews. You've written maybe 200 words in your column because of doing all the interviews. And then you got to do the most unpleasant thing that I can imagine is sticking them sticking, I guess like Q-tips directly into your brain. It feels like I would honestly, yeah, it, that's totally what it is. And you know, I would honestly prefer the Q-tips to brain over like a blood draw or something like that. You know, it, it was, it was not that bad. And it, it was really like a, one and a half minute process and <laughs> there's this there's this great photo that i'll share at some point when like things have cooled off a little bit but there's the two oklahoma state health department uh officials who are testing me in like hazmat gear oh, no. and you know they've got face shields on they've got the mask on and everything else and i'm just standing or i'm just sitting in the middle in a locker room chair just like smiling for this photo and nervously smiling because I don't have anything else to do right like in in the game attire of the suit and the tie and it's it rolled up sleeves and everything else anyway it's um it it, it was crazy but the the test itself is is fine um it, it's it's not a huge deal it does feel like they're tickling your brain because it's all the way up in your your sinuses and so they do a flu test first like a regular basic flu test or did they do they just go straight for the for the COVID. They just went, I mean, for me, they, I, I just know what happened on the front end, you know? So they, they took a swab of the back of my throat and then up in my na and up in the sinus cavity. Right. Uh, but I don't know if they did a influenza test at the lab or, or right, not. Cause you're not showing symptoms at this point. So it's not like they're right. ruling out other things. They're, they're specifically testing you for the coronavirus because of exactly. Whereas like, yeah, Rudy was tested for influenza and then tested for strep throat and tested negative for both. And it was at that point they were like, OK, maybe that we should try out the coronavirus thing. Now, you how long did it take for you to get the results back? And was that uh, was that did you get any sleep during that point or what, <laughs> how much how much lag time are we talking here? Yeah, so it was it's an eight hour test. The Oklahoma State Health Department at the time, and I don't know if this is still true, could only do 24 tests at a time. So uh, from what I understand, like it, they had to do at least one part of the process only took 24 vials. It, it ended up getting my results. I took the test around midnight, 1230. I got the result around 10, 1030. So pretty quick, actually. And you're, is this like a college admissions thing where you're, you're grabbing the envelope or opening up the email and your heart is pounding? 
It's a it's a phone call from I got a phone call from Team PR basically. So I don't I actually don't know what he's calling about at that point. So luckily, you know, obviously I wanted to know ASAP, but I don't know who's going to tell me the results or when or how. So that kind of made it less nerve wracking to hit that yeah answer call button. You know, at, at that point I just wanted any information. And so that are you quarantined at that point? Like, did you go straight to your hotel? Did you hop in an Uber? Like. Yeah, um, you know, the, the hotel at OKC is pretty close, so I just walked over there. Um, you know, we, we asked the state health department officials if we could be in a hotel, given that we didn't know the outcome of the test. And they said, yes, you know, that actually what they do for people with questionable housing situations that get sick or, uh, you know, need to be quarantined from the rest of the population is they buy them a hotel room and then um, they're just, you know, there. So it's that's uh, not out of the norm for like a sick person to be in a hotel, which I thought was interesting. But yeah, they told us to go back to the hotel and then the team told us basically we're going to try to figure uh, out how we're going to get you home. And um, that's when, you know, but we don't we don't know when the flight's going to leave. We don't know how many flights it's going to be. We don't know any of the logistics yet. So stay tuned for that at, at any point over the next, you know, 12, 24 hours. Man. So you're are you texting your your fellow writers and beat writers like seeing if they're OK? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean that <laughs> I was on the phone with like Tony Jones and Sarah Todd that nearly that whole night, like just talking about what had happened. You know, at one point we decided to split up and have Tony be by the team buses to see if the teams, you know, would leave and win and kind of report that while I stayed on the court of, uh, OKC and, you know, honestly just tried to look at the tunnels, tried to see what I could see from kind of the front lines. I took that picture of them like wiping down the jazz bench, yes, you know, that, that kind of Andy. stuff. Right. Yeah, it's and so, you know, we kind of spread up and kind of been in constant communication throughout the night just because, you know, at that point, it's not about who breaks the story first. It's about what's going on. It's such a weird thing to be like recovering something that has direct impact on your life and your livelihood and, and just yeah. your health. And did you ever feel like you had a public duty to to do this or were you also just like, hey, this is a weird thing for a sports reporter to be <laughs> reporting on like a public health scare. I, I felt both of those things, but you know, I, I think that doesn't mean that I can't do the job, you know, maybe that's, that's optimistic of me, but I, I thought, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm the person here right or wrong to, to do this or, you know, one of the people here. And at that point, yeah, it's my job to let people know what's going on. That's, that's part of the thing. And it's, you, you know, this, you know, it's sports reporting is not always sports reporting. Sometimes life seeps in in other ways. And I think that's, that's one of the things that makes sports interesting, but I, I, you know, it's, that's, that's part of it. And so I was, uh, you, you, it's, it's not the first time. This is obviously the biggest thing that I will probably cover in my career, quite frankly. But, you know, like the Russell Westbrook incident last year where he's yelling at these fans was did not feel like a sports thing either. This was that times 100, obviously. But, you know, it's you, you kind of get used to it. So I saw Donovan Mitchell on the GMA this morning talking about his, uh, his, his experience. And he's still in isolation after testing positive. There's a lot been made about whether he and Rudy are basically uh, warring over this. What is your insight yeah. into that relationship? And like, why, um, why do you think that so much has been made about Donovan and Rudy and their relationship? I know there is, there's a lot of reading between the lines with, with Donovan's IG post, but what, 
What's your read on that situation, given that you've been with this team for so long? Yeah, totally. So, you know, I, I think, first of all, you know, I, I've got the sourcing saying that, yeah, he was frustrated. And heck, he admitted it on GMA today that, yeah, I was frustrated after testing positive that after, you know, that Rudy had done all these kind of very careless things to uh, put myself more in danger, you know, not just touching the microphones, but apparently he was doing kind of similar stuff in, in the locker room. And um, that's that's really a bummer in, in the wake of this. But Rudy apologized to his to his credit. And I think, you know, he certainly was not the only one being careless or reckless about this thing in, in the days and weeks ahead of of that positive test. You know, so it, it really could have been anyone. Um, and he pledged that five hundred thousand dollars, Rudy Gay. I mean, yeah. Sorry, Rudy Gobert. Rudy Rudy Gobert has pledged five hundred thousand dollars to relief efforts and just promotion for Oklahoma City too, not just Utah. So, like, if you want to get on him for touching the microphones and and you know totally roast him for that, like his his reaction to this, um, I think is anything but careless or reckless. It, it is clearly an example of someone who, yeah, made a huge mistake and feels very bad about it and is trying to do everything he or her he or she can to, you know, make it better. You know, that's that's clearly what's going on here. And but nevertheless, I still understand Donovan's point of view here, too, which is, you know, like uh, uh, this is a personal story, but I had a coworker who I felt got me sick a couple of years ago and I was pretty mad at him, right? Like he showed up to work sick and he was coughing and, and it was like, come on, bro, just stay home. But he didn't. And I thought I got sick because of it. Well, I was pretty mad at him for a couple of weeks, right? Like I wasn't, I wasn't excited to talk to him. I was pretty upset, especially when you're at home and you've got the flu. Like I, I was mad and then I got over it. Right. And we still work together today and it's, it's fine. Right. I don't know if that's going to happen, right? Uh, you know, I think the my situation and Donovan Mitchell's situation are very different. He's a 23-year-old NBA superstar, and there might be hurt feelings there because of the, the public part of it. There might be hurt feelings there because of, you know, everything else. And because, you know, I think there's a question as to, who's the the real leader of this team is a Rudy Gobert or Donovan Mitchell I think that's that's a question that was coming in even before this week but as far as I think it would be rational for Donovan to in the next two months move on and and make amends and try to make this thing right but the the truth is we don't know how he's going to react over the next six weeks and I, I don't know that Donovan and, you know, Donovan's closest friends do either. You know, it's it's a will Donovan continue to be uh, salty about this? I, you know, I, I don't know that anybody knows. No, it's it's way too early to project down the road. I just didn't know if there was anything between Rudy and Donovan that would previously their their relationship, whether they were tight or especially close or if this is just, you know, teammates. Look, like this is a workplace issue, too. Like you said, you've had issues with a, a past coworker who did this. And, um, you know, part of the reason why I remember back in 2010, I'm starting my, uh, I'm starting my new job at ESPN and it's the LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, the big three. And I remember showing up to work and like really feeling like I had the flu. And I just mm-hmm. had this attitude of like, you know what, I'm just going to power through. Cause I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm a gamer. I'm going to, I'm going to really punch the clock here. And, and I want I want to show up and be a good, good colleague and, and, right. and show up. But then my colleagues were like, get the, get out of here, man. <laughs> yeah. And we I don't like, care. Wait, I thought I was doing good by showing up. And they're like, no yeah. man, you're, you're going to get us all sick. And then I realized like, there's no glory in being the hero there. And um, right. now, now the, the other thing, Andy, I want to point out is like, we don't know if Rudy gave it to Donovan, right? Like That's there's no, the, yeah. We Very don't know true. that. And so there's kind of like this, 
blaming Rudy, but we also don't really know the direction and maybe we will never know the direction of this or the correlation or causation of when, uh, when Donovan was infected. So there's all this gray area. And I, and I guess if I'm Donovan, I feel just, I don't know, being thrust into this story. Uh, I can see why being, being associated with the patient quote unquote patient zero of the coronavirus in the NBA, I can see why having my name being associated with that story forever might feel like a stain. And that I can understand being that like, that's not a story that goes away. That's always going to be on your legacy. That's always going to be on your resume or your, your, uh, your Wikipedia page or whatever. This part of the, your story, your career is always going to be there. So I can understand the frustration that if this could have been prevented, that, Colleagues, staffers, family didn't do everything they could to have prevented it. I can understand that 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 probably isn't gonna, that sting is probably not going to go away anytime soon. That's that's a real thing. Oh yeah, and I I again yeah very much understand Donovan's point of view here. It's just yeah, kind of how long that takes to heal, and if if you know it does has have a chance to heal in the next two months. You know, obviously the Jazz will be working to make that happen. Um, you know, I, I think their relationship beforehand was not, you know, they were not best friends, but I, I think it is really indicative and Shams reported this too, that they were sitting on the team plane next to each other on Tuesday and they were sitting on the team bus next to each other on Tuesday, you know, like, so these are guys that aren't avoiding each other by any means before what happened, uh, with the positive test. These are guys who talk together in the locker room about what's going on with the team. They joke back and forth. Not that Rudy Gobert was Donovan Mitchell's best friend on the team, but that they were sitting together on the bus and on this transportation on Tuesday, uh, as reported, you know, I think indicates something about where they were in a, in a positive way. So your life has changed big time in the past week, man. Like most, <laughs> most people are like, wow, things really changed in the last 10 days. Like you were called into, did you have any idea that going into work on, on Wednesday, you'd be getting a call or a text from CNN? Like that must've been. Oh yeah. No. I mean, that's, that's part of it. That's like, it is insane. And you just kind of roll with the punches, right? That that's a little bit. This job is dealing with, with news that comes up and being ready to handle it as quickly as possible. And you feel like you're on call all the time, but as far as anything as big as this, you know, it's never happened in my career and, and probably is unlikely to happen again in my career. Wow. Well, it's, it's an incredible story. And, um, I can't even believe that this, this happens just like I was saying this on the podcast, like a month ago is can't believe we're sitting here and Kobe Bryant is no longer with us. This doesn't seem mm-hmm. real. And still to this, like, it, it, it just happened again where I'm sitting here on a podcast, not realizing like the, the gravity of what's going on. And here you were and it happened to you and you were sitting there and, and thinking, man, did I just was I just infected by the coronavirus, too? And yeah. Um, and, and I don't know. Like, I, I think obviously this is this is one for the history books, but I don't know that I've had a ton of a chance to process that either. You know, you kind of go through. I kind of go through my own reporting on it and see if there's anything I could have done better. I remember just whatever I wrote on Wednesday is garbage, you know, like no, <laughs> whatever, whatever the fantastic. initial story was, was no good whatsoever. Cause I was, I was shaken. You know, I, I have one of those, uh, heart rate Fitbit watches kind of thing. And just my heart rate for the whole night is over a hundred. Like, and it's, it's one of the, it actually triggered me. It was like, were you working out at this point? I was like, no, I was just sitting on the arena floor typing. <laughs> worried about my 
my, you know, whether or not I was sick, whether or not my, I could see my parents for the next while, you know, like whether or not they'd be all these kind of things, you know? So, uh, it's, what was your stats that night? What was your average like heart rate per minute? Oh, I should pull it up. I, it was like one Oh five. Um, it it's, it normally? <laughs> it's, Oh, 70. Let's see. So yesterday, and this is a lot of lounging, right? But yesterday average heart rate 72, uh, Wednesday it is, well, okay, so for the period between 7 o'clock and midnight, I was at 109 average. So it was just, <laughs> That's yeah, you're incredible. just, you know, you're you're a nervous wreck, and what are you going to do? That's like, that's working out? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That would, hey, you forgot to log uh, your, your five-mile run here, Andy. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, that that's exactly the update. I think it thought I was cycling, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the thoughts of of impending doom were cycling through your brain. Like that's what was happening. Like I, that was the only cycling that was happening. Exactly. Um, man, that's that's incredible. Well, um I do appreciate you taking the time to uh to run through that story. I know it's hard to process and I hope uh that people out there listening understand you know, that this is, this went from like jokey, jokey to serious in a matter of days in a matter of minutes for you. And, um, I'm just so glad to hear that you, you, you tested negative for the coronavirus and that hopefully, uh, all of us, uh, we, we have the least, least, uh, amount of hindrances possible from this and we all stay safe. And you, you got to feel like you dodged a bullet there, but also we're, we're still like, you still have to be careful out there. Like, it's not like you yeah. can go out to the bars and go out to these sporting events anymore. Um, it's not like now you're, you're good. Like you of all people should understand that this is, this is something that you have to be careful about. Right. Totally. And, and that's, it's very, this is a very serious thing. This is something that we all have to take seriously, whether or not we interviewed Rudy Gobert, right? Like the, the truth of the matter is that given the lack of testing, we don't know who has it and who doesn't. And it's, it's not crazy for every healthy person to think that they should behave as if they may have it, you know, um, it's probably what would be best for our community as, as a whole. So it's, you know, I, I obviously had the more direct contact and so I have to stay very vigilant and I haven't, you know, left my house in four days and won't for the next 10, but um, you know, I think we can all do our part as far as making this as, you know, as, as least dangerous as possible. And, and hopefully it affects as few lives as possible. Man, I imagine like Rudy just wants to give you a big hug and say, I'm sorry. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. I, I legit would take that from Rudy at this point. Like <laughs> I, I feel bad for the dude. I really do. Like he, again, he's is someone we nominated for this media award. He's a great media relate regulate relations guy. Uh, it's just, I, you know, he will never, ever, this is his legacy and it, that sucks. You know, he's, he's Bill Buckner who had a terrific career and it's always going to be the ball rolling through the legs. The Rudy is always going to be coronavirus patient zero. And that's, it's, you know, I, I don't know what it means to be history in that, in that way. But he's trying to make right. And I love, I love seeing those stories and, um, you know, Zion and Giannis and Kevin love, um, but, but. Rudy is donating a half million dollars to good causes as a result of this, um, this fallout. So look, um, best to you, Andy, thanks so much for joining me and telling the story. And to all those listening at home, I hope you learned a thing or two about the scare and also that it 
just because you're interacting with with someone with the uh, coronavirus does not necessarily guarantee that you have this uh, now been in- infected. And and to that point, that was such a relief to me to see that uh, that unfortunately, like Donovan mentioned today, that he was, there were two people who have been infected, but that the other, the, the others like Andy on the, on the beat, uh, on the traveling party, they were not testing positive for the coronavirus. So I'm, I'm super yep. glad for that, Andy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very good news. All right. Well, uh, anything else you'd like to say to the people out there, any questions that are myths about you or the team um, <laughs> with the coronavirus that you just want to get on your platform and, and just scream to the masses? Uh, not really. I can't think of anything. Uh, you know, I think the the story pretty much covers it, which is what happened to me. You know, I, I, I do want to say how about this. I do want to say thank you to the jazz organization for getting us home after uh, after what happened, you know, I think there are, I don't know if there are teams that would have just been like, well, you're on your own and you can't fly anywhere. So good luck with that. And being an OKC for a couple of weeks, but, um, I am really very thankful that the jazz, you know, let us be on the team plane and, and fly us home and, um, you know, got us, got us back to Salt Lake city. Law and Order SVU is now TV's longest running primetime drama. And this season, we're going even deeper with the Law and Order SVU podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, and now for the sports business and Wall Street perspective from CNBC's sports business reporter, Eric Shemi. We were just sitting down like 10 days ago. Was it 10 days ago? Feels like... Yeah, 10 days ago, Friday, Friday the 6th. Wow. So 10 days ago, we were sitting in a conference room in Boston, getting ready for your panel uh, at the Sloan Conference, the MIT Sloan Conference. And we were discussing, hey, what is going to be the effect of this coronavirus? Just kind of talking off the cuff about this stuff. And now, 10 days later, everything has shut down. Uh, The NBA on Wednesday night said it's suspending the season. Um, We could be potentially out until June at the best case scenario, according to ESPN. A lot has changed, and I'm wondering uh, where you are, if you're feeling okay, and are you feeling uh, just just that that conversation feels completely quaint right now? So I'm actually in our office at CNBC right now. I'm I'm looking around. I literally... I see one other person out of what I could have seen a hundred. So there's just a very, very skeleton staff here. It's just the bare bones for us to put shows on the air. They've got people reporting from home. I think some of the shows, the anchors are going to be at home uh, starting tomorrow. So that's going to be interesting to see hosts just from their house. That may be happening to me pretty soon, but for now I'm one of the last few people still in the office. Um, yeah, that, that conference, it was 10 days ago. I remember people were sort of laughing at, at the coronavirus stuff. Like, okay, let's let's touch elbows. And some people blew that off. Like, forget the elbows. I'm just shaking hands. Um, some people said, hey, you know what? If any one of us gets it here, they're never going to trace it back because everyone here is an NBA owner or is a reporter like you or is a player or a coach, a GM. They're never going to figure out how it got here. So people are just blowing it off. And you think about who was in that room. So you and me are looking around, and I see like the people on my panel for once. It's the owners of the Sixers and the Celtics, who are also big-time Wall Street executives. It's the president of ESPN. Oh, there's Stephen A. Smith walking around. Oh, there's Justin Tuck. Oh, there's Andy Roddick. There's 
Nobel Prize winner Richard Thaler, and he, he and I had a conversation for 20 minutes, and and it goes on and on and on, and all those people were at that conference in that room. Remember, that was Friday. On Thursday night, MIT had already canceled all activities like this, but because technically the conference sort of technically starts Thursday night, it was, okay, we've already started, we're just going to keep going, and everyone I talked to there that day on Friday said, if this were next week, there's no way this conference would have happened. Yeah, that was kind of the feeling around there was it feels kind of icky to be here right now, but it felt like canceling that event might have, it would have been too late. And the NBA sort of dealt with the same thing, which is they canceled the, the they suspended the season on Wednesday, Wednesday night when they figured out that uh, Rudy Gobert, a Utah jazz player had tested positive for the coronavirus, but it, but they kept the games going on that had already started and the 10.30 Eastern time game between the Pelicans and the Kings was going to go on as planned until the very yep. last moment before the game. Uh, one of the, the way I was described, the, the scene was described to me, was a Pelicans official found out that one of the referees had just two days prior officiated the, um, the Jazz game and was openly talking about it in the bowels of the uh, the arena. And then it kind of created this chain of events where, hey, guys, we have someone who is exposed to the virus uh, just two days ago. Maybe we shouldn't be playing this game. And then it was called off at the last second before they decided to tip off. And it, it there is no manual here, right, Eric? Like there's nothing here that Adam Silver or Joshua Harris or any of the owners can point to and say, hey, this is what happened five years ago, 10 years ago. Here's the rule book. So this is what we're going to do. Right. And I, and what's interesting that we should point out that referee turned out was tested negative for the virus. Um, they did an entire test with all the Toronto Raptors, the players, the whole traveling team. It was 50 people or so. And they had just played the jazz just right around then. None of them got it. Only one other player, you know, you know, so let's say there's two total players on the Jazz that got it. It's not like it's 15. It's not like it's 20. Um, so it's a good reminder that, look, it's scary, but it's not like dozens and dozens of people who came into contact got it. It's like, okay, one or two people got it. So we should just all remember that, yeah, it spreads, but it's not like it's not like the Midas touch. Right? Like as soon as it, you touch it, boom, you, you get the virus. So. Right. So that's just something to remember. That that ref, they didn't play the game, but that ref turned out to not to not have gotten the virus. So that's yes. just something I want to point out. Yes, and and to be clear, the Detroit Pistons player did play the Utah Jazz, but I think we need right. to be careful here to point out that like we don't know the direction or the co- correlation. Yeah, who knows or if the causation. Pistons player got it first and gave it to the Jazz? Right? You don't know where it came from. So right. so we know people talk about one particular player on the Jazz, but. Maybe he wasn't the first one to get it. Maybe he came and he got it from someone else. You never know. Right. And and so that's the tricky thing about this situation is, uh, you know, as I, as I wrote in my column, a lot of the media went to that Friday jazz game and then yeah. went to the conference. And so that is an, a, another thing to consider in this, in this story is you know, even though, you know, there's 20,000 fans that might not come in direct, obviously the, the people in the, in uh, the nosebleeds are going to be interacting with Rudy Gobert on the court. But there are players, there are uh, media who have interactions with or exposed to the, to the infection that, uh, that, you know, just in retrospect, you're like, wait a minute, I did go to that game and I did, I did walk past that player. And it creates this, this, this state of, uh, 
of panic and of just worry and concern. And I'm, I'm sitting here in my, my office at home and I work from home. So this is totally, this is not a total disruption of my, my day-to-day work schedule. My, um, my studio that I, that I do my TV hits, um, across NBC sports, it's right behind me, five, five feet behind me. And you know what, Eric, like, I don't know if you have to be on set at a studio table now, but like the at home studio situation, a lot of people don't realize you're wearing pajama pants. You're wearing sweatpants underneath. Like you're not, you're not in a full suit sometimes. So those people that you see, that's like John Clayton on a, on ESPN commercial, like, yeah, there's all those people that you see now who are who are broadcasting from their offices, their home offices now. I think that's going to be the norm going forward. And I, it sounds like to me that CNBC is, is kind of transitioning to that point. Yeah, every day where more and more people are transitioning to that. So I think it's just a, it's a it's a setup issue with who, you know, the cameraman, the equipment, the video. So they're one by one doing that to more and more people. So there were a couple last week. There are a couple more today. There will be a couple more tomorrow. And I'm sure that trend's certainly not going down, right? It'll be at least steady or higher as each day as each day goes on. And that's just one network, right? So multiply that by every other network. So when, when people are at home wondering about the business side of this coronavirus and, and their NBA teams, like what should they be thinking about? What are some of the things that uh, – you know, the coronavirus shutting down the season, the implications of that. What is it, the takeaways from the people at home when they think about how the business side affects the actual on-court product? Right, so it's, it's multiple, right? So it's how does the business side affect the on-court product? How does the on-court product affect the business side? So it goes both ways. So we know we've, we've seen a lot of stories, the arena workers, those just very low-level, low-income, part-time, hourly, those guys that you see a lot when you come in, the ushers, security guys, the vendors, the, all that stuff. We know that they're getting paid per game. If there are no games, or a lot of these are concert venues as well, these arenas, they're not getting paid. So we've seen a lot of players and teams. I think Kevin Love was the first one say he was going to put in a hundred grand to support those guys. But now you're seeing a lot of teams, arenas, owners, players, they're all stepping up to say, hey, we're going to support these guys because we know that they they really need that money. And they're not making a lot of money. they got to pay those car bills. they got to pay for or, you know, student loans, they got to pay their medical bills, they've got little kids, they, so we're going to look out for them. And then you go up from there, you've got people that are making, you know, regular, just typical salaries, maybe even a little bit below average salaries working for teams, right? Because we know a lot of employees on teams, it's not a high paying job because a lot of people want to do it. It's a fun job, so you don't get paid that much, and they need that money too. So what's going to happen to you know, pick any random team. Oh, I'm just a, you know, I'm a director of like community relations at a random team. Yeah, yeah like an account, account executive, executive trying yeah. to, you know, bring in corporate sponsorships for the team. Exactly, right? Also, now there are no sponsorships, or you're trying to sell sponsors for next season, or you're trying to do make goods on what you lost this season, and there's all these, you know, the marketing folks and the game day folks and all those guys that work for teams that are music you just never see, you never heard, that you never hear of. Who knows what's going to happen to them, right? Are they going to get paid or not? And and these are just, you know, I would say I call them average American jobs, right? They're not getting rich. They do it for the passion of the game. They work tons of hours. They're working 24-7. They're not making a lot of money. We don't know what will happen to them because we know there's not necessarily a lot of a lot of insurance coverage for this because a lot of insurance you have to specifically buy for this kind of 
this kind of coverage, you know, whether it's a disease or a business interruption, you have to specifically buy for it. And then there's a lot of companies that will literally not sell coverage like this because remember the whole point of insurance is to diversify risk, right? Okay, hey, if your house in Charlotte has a fire, that doesn't affect my house in New Jersey. So they can insure fire because it doesn't all, the whole country doesn't go in flames at the same time. So that's why insurance works. Like your car crashes, not because my car crashes, but something like this, the whole country shuts down. Insurance companies, they can't run a business insuring something like that because they'll go out of business. So that's why when people say, well, why isn't there insurance? The whole point of insurance is when they can diversify. You can't diversify this, right? You can't diversify, oh, I insured one NBA team. Well, they all shut down. They all, they're all going to go down together. So that's a reminder for people that it's not that easy. Oh, why did they buy insurance? Like, you just can't get it for something like that. Yeah, then, then you think about these owners. So you think about, like you mentioned Tillman Fertitta. He came on CNBC. He owns restaurants. Right? He's not a tech billionaire. He's not Mark Cuban. He's not, he's not yes. some Facebook guy. He, he owns restaurants. And what's happening to restaurants? People are either not coming or the government is shutting them down. So that is And casinos. He owns casinos angle. as well, which are... And he casinos, owns, yeah. He owns casinos, restaurants, and you know, an NBA team, all of which depend on huge crowds. Exactly. So if you think about, in a way, his entire grouping, it's all, it's all an in-person event business, right? He's a, he's a hospitality guy. Like across all of those sectors, his overall thing is hospitality. You don't do hospitality working from home, right? Hospitality is not a Skype tech business. You've got to be there. So, you know, you look for someone like him, you're going to see how that has to play out in Houston. What, what does that mean for their salary cap next year? Is he going to be a taxpayer? Is he even going to have to sell the team? So, so you think about for somebody like, somebody like him, his, his basketball money is going to affect his real business and his real business is going to affect his basketball. So that's going to be something to watch. Yeah, so ESPN was reporting the other day that uh, there were three holdouts on the conference call with Board of Governors in the decision to whether to ban fans from coming to the game, play in empty arenas, or just going on a hiatus. There were three teams reported by ESPN that wanted to hold out and wait until this, the you know the, there was a formal government mandate to not have fans in the arenas. They preferred to not do the banned uh, spectator. Plan. So that was the Houston Rockets, the New York Knicks, and the Indiana Pacers, according to ESPN. So what? why would an owner do that? And what, what kind of reaction did you have to seeing that kind of news that, that t- there were three owners who did not uh, want to ban fans from attending the game? So I'll say um, when I was talking to some other owners at the conference um, while we were in Boston, while you and I were there, one of them told me, hey, we feel like we're a public trust. If we shut down in any form by you know, sending fans home or not playing in any form, we're going to scare the hell out of people because they look to us for leadership. And, and we're going to keep going because we're not going to shut in. The phrase they use is, look, we're not going to shut down because 10 people got sick. Like we got thousands of people coming. Basically, everybody's fine. We're not shutting down. This is ridiculous. So again, that was, that was the attitude that last Friday, that 10, 10 days ago. Yeah. There were other owners who thought, look, this is a temporary thing. It's going to go away. It's going to be fine. Um, you know, I'll wait, point out for look, two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like it's, it's not that big of a deal because they'll compare it to the flu, whatever. So you look at those three teams that you mentioned. The New York thing, I feel like we've all spilled a lot of ink about what goes on in New York. That's its own, that's its own weird reality there. 
take a look at the owners of, of Indiana and Houston, Houston, we just mentioned that's a restaurant guy. So if the NBA shuts down, you're sending a message to all businesses. Like I think we saw it in a way, the NBA shutting down last Wednesday sort of sent a message to the whole country. It's all over, shut everything down. So he owns restaurants and it's all going to go down together. So the Indiana Pacers, they're owned by Herb Simon. Simon Property Group is the largest retail real estate investment trust in the country. They are the largest shopping mall operator in the United States. So who else is getting killed right now? Shopping malls. So, so again, you think about with who the owner I talked to who was not one of those teams. He said, we're a public trust. People look to us for leadership. If we shut down, everything else, everyone's going to freak out. And then he commended the fact that the San Jose Sharks – played their NHL game earlier that week, right before the conference. He said, look, you know, their local government was telling everyone to shut down and they defied them and they played anyway. And I'm proud of them because they're not going to get into the sphere. Again, that was from one owner uh, talking about the, the attitude of trying to play games. And again, that was 10 days ago. I don't know if they would say the same thing now. Yeah. And, and things escalated so quickly. Um, even on, on Wednesday, I remember working uh, and just, Every 30 seconds was a new just bombshell. It was Rudy Gobert got um, got tested. A player for the Utah Jazz was tested positive for the right. coronavirus. Then it came out that it was Rudy Gobert. And, and that's like – that's not just any player. That's a defensive player of the year. That's an all-star. Right. Uh, that's a global, by the way, a, um, a French big man who's got global following. So this is huge news. You, it wasn't some you know 13th guy off the bench. This was one of the NBA's biggest stars. And so then it then just uh, – it was it was questioning whether any games would go on and what what they do and then Adam Silver suspended the season just like that and he has since called it a split second decision. I mean, there's there's so much to hash out here because remember because uh, I don't mean to cut you off, but remember the next day was going to be that Warriors game without fans, right? The next day was supposed Brooklyn to be the Nets first. Game. Non, yeah, the Nets were going to go to the Warriors because remember they had just beat the Lakers, so the Nets were up on that road trip. They they beat the Lakers. They were going up to San Francisco, and that was going to be our first NBA game without fans. They never even made it. They never made it to that day. They didn't. They didn't. And it's you know I remember hearing from one of the governors that I talked to saying that that was playing without fans in the arena was going to be a, a a nuclear option. Like that, that, that was going to be the last, that last resort. And then in like two days, like that would have been a great situation. They would love to play right. in front of uh, fans. Right. I mean, in front of band, uh, you know, empty arenas. So um, that's how quickly this changed. Um, that's how quickly things reversed. And as, as information trickled in and I, I, I think about how, how is this going to affect next year? Or how is this going to affect, what are the scenarios that goes through your mind whether the game, the season is completely canceled, that they do not restart the regular season, they do not play the playoffs, and then what happens for next season? And secondly, if they decide to play a, a delayed restart to the season, um, the latest intel is that at best case scenario, it would return in June, sometime in June, um, and play out the rest of the season. But that has implications for next season too. Right, so, so just a couple of quick numbers that I think will help get some scale typical arena this these are some numbers that sports business journal put together you know average ticket revenue per game for the nba you're talking one to two and a half million dollars but a big market team like warriors lakers Knicks, three to four million dollars per home game 
just in ticket revenue. So let's say teams had about 10 home games left. So every single team was, call it 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars gone just on tickets. You add on top of that 500 to 750 in food and beverage, you know, parking and merchandise, all of that other stuff, you start, you start adding it on. So now you're doing that times multiple teams, multiple games, you're getting hundreds of millions of dollars. So that's going to add up pretty fast. So, or just think of it more simply, teams played, call it even 60 games, 60 out of 80, they played three quarters. So if one quarter of the NBA's revenue just disappears, right? What does that mean? Is salary cap going to be down one quarter? Right. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. You missed a quarter of the season. For some teams, you missed a third of the season. So just on that percentage, that's a big number if you don't play it back. And if you don't get the playoffs, because we know the playoffs, you're not really paying players for the playoffs. Right? You pay them for the regular season. The playoff is all profits because a player gets, you know, I make $20 million. I don't get more for the playoffs. I just made my 20. I've already made it. So the playoffs are going to be all profits for the leagues. And we know most of the TV value is the playoffs. So if they don't get those games, you're you're losing even more than the third that you didn't get for the regular season. So I think it just all depends. Do they make up those games or not? Do they make them up with fans or not? If they run late, what about the Olympics? Oh, sorry, Anthony Davis and LeBron James are off in Tokyo playing Olympic basketball, so they're not available for the Lakers? Are you now holding another two-week gap? Or do you say, sorry, there's no Olympic. We're not allowing NBA players to go to the Olympics. Or are they hoping that the Olympics get canceled because maybe for the NBA, that's the greedy outcome. So there's a lot of questions we got to figure out if we're now running into the summer. Oh yeah. And and then going into next season too, if you play out the rest of the regular season starting in June, that goes into August. And then are you asking players to uh, not have their normal, you know, two month layoff Um, for, for some, for some players in the regular season in a typical year, if they're done playing in April uh, and they're not a playoff team, that's a few months off, but I think we're going to see a situation where the NBA... But they just got their two-month layoff. This is the two-month layoff. That's what they might tell them. You got off March, <laughs> April, and May. That was it. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, none of this feels like a vacation. None of this does. And for players who are trying to recharge, uh, they've got their families to tend to, just the mental and emotional strain of, of going through this this situation. It's not like they're on a beach in uh, in uh, in Barcelona, right? They're not, right. They're not yeah, they're taking time out. off. So, like, I just... I just imagine that we're going to go into next season. My guess is that we go into next season if we go with a, a a delayed restart of the season. So let's just say best case scenario happens. They come back in June. They play out the rest of the regular season. They play out the playoffs as planned. I think we're going to start to see the NBA kind of use this opportunity. Tell me if I, if, if I sound wrong on this. I think this NBA league office might use this opportunity, the silver lining of this, this horrible pandemic and say, let's try some new things next year. Let's try starting the season on December 25th or December 15th, whatever it is. I'm a big advocate of starting the season on the 25th on Christmas day. It's a huge event on the NBA calendar as is. Why not just try that and try the mid season tournament just to try to kind of shake things up because it's been such a rough year but I could see the other side of it. It's like, hey, let's let's try not to reinvent the wheel here. We just had a horrible 2020. Let's try to make 2021 uh, with as few hiccups as possible. Where do you think the NBA goes? Let's just say scenario A, they resume the season and they go deep into the you know August for the 2021 or 2019-2020 so season. I think it depends 
what's the goal that they want to get done, right? I think if they, they want to get an in-season tournament and they want a shorter regular season, then this is the perfect opportunity to do it. If the consensus was there to do it, they're like, you know what, let's just do it now because if it doesn't work, we always have we can always blame, well, this was a weird off season and it was good to, you know, well, it'll be better next year. So if they actually don't want to do it, then it's, like you said, the perfect opportunity to say, hey, we're just going to keep this normal. We're not going to get too crazy. So I think they'll do whatever they want to do anyway. And the rupture of this break allows them to do it without as much hassle and without as much complaint. But you can make the argument, hey, if next year's cap is going to be way lower because of the China losses and because of these losses, and let's say we're down 10, 20% on the cap, then maybe we should cut 10 to 20% of the games because then maybe that sort of averages out. Like, look, you're going to get paid less, so you might as well play less. And we sort of even it out over this year and next year. So I just think it all depends on how long it goes, right? If they can get back and get to a full 82 and you get a full 16 teams in the playoffs and they're all best of seven, and in the end, all we lost was the delay, but we didn't actually lose games, I think that gives them more opportunity to try some stuff. If all of a sudden it's like, hey, we ran out of games, we ran out of time, and all we did was we just said Milwaukee and LA are going to play in NBA Finals, and that's all we're going to do. Then I think the rupture this year, it doesn't allow them to do as much next year. You know what I mean? It's sort of like the more the rupture is this year, the less they can get away with next year. Man, if they do a But again, Milwaukee I'm not Lakers, an owner. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not a billionaire. I'm not a billionaire. They think differently. The way they approach things is differently. And you know what it's like. You talk to them. The way they see the world is very different because they employ people. They pay people. You and me are employees. We don't have the responsibility of hiring and firing. We don't know what it's like to, to run a P&L. We don't know what it's like to be responsible for people's livelihood. So I think they, they take a much more deep serious look at how they do these things. And that's why you do see owners who say, no, I'm really trying as best as I can to hold on to these games because they make, they make a lot of people a lot of money and I don't want to hurt those people. So I think what's one of the cool things that has happened is that uh, Zion Williams and Giannis ended a good book. Kevin Love, in addition to those players who are stepping out and saying, I'd like to support the arena workers or those who are affected part-time workers who rely on these games happening for their uh, you know, paychecks to come in. Not only that, just about every team. I, I started. I started just tracking w- which teams have committed to paying their arena workers, um, the the part time. You know, the ushers, the men and women who show up and greet you with a smile or help you find your seats. Uh, security at the arenas. That those who work at, at with the vendors, they have stepped up and said we are going to take care of that. And I want to give a shout out to Mark Cuban. Here, because not only are they doing that, supporting um, those staffers, those part-time staffers through the rest of the regular season, but they're also reimbursing for for their breakfast and their lunch for the next, I I believe it is, for the next 30 days or so. So I think Mark Cuban said that he was going to pick up their breakfast and lunch from independent local establishments. And it's it's fascinating to see how, how teams and owners are reacting to this from from a humanitarian standpoint of trying to help the community. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, does it keep going, though? If this stoppage is 60 days, 90 days, 120, will they keep stepping up like that, right? Let's, they don't, it's certainly commendable that, that some people have done it right now. Let's see how far they can go. Uh, what's also interesting to point out is some teams are also the owner of their arenas. Some teams are just tenants in their arenas. 
And a lot of the times the people that work those games, they're arena paid people. So sometimes the teams actually have nothing to do with it. The arena just pays their rent. They come and they play their game there. And those workers are actually dealt with by the arena owner, not the team owner. So that creates some complexities. Mm. So depending on each team's circumstance, they may or may not be able to do it in the sense of like, oh, well, like they're not really our employees. It's sort of not on us to do that. We just we just were renters. We're just tenants here. So, of course, nothing nothing stops anyone from giving money to anyone else. But, but the responsibility may lie elsewhere because we know there's some teams. It's hey, I own the arena. I own an NBA team and an NHL all in the same arena. And then a lot of those things are all split up by different entities. So that will be a complexity to watch because I've already heard some rumblings about well, you know, we were going to pay them, but actually. They're the arena employees, so that's not us. That's a different thing. We're just tenants. So I've already heard some ownership people telling me, like, don't look to us. This is not our problem. Right, and and if you read the verbiage of these uh, press releases, it's interesting. You, some will say, like, we'll alleviate the, uh, the wages lost or we'll uh, compensate them, whether they do it fully or not. I think it does – it does matter if they're just tenants versus the owners of those arenas, right? So like yeah. some, some you'll, you might read one team say, hey, we're going to pick up every, every employee's uh, tab, their wages going forward. Uh, and then you might see some teams say, hey, we're going to uh, create a fund that will go towards the pay for, for their workers. And the distinction there is one team is picking up the full tab and just saying, we're going to pay you just as it was for the rest of the regular season, um, even though those those regular season games are, are outstanding and that they're canceled or postponed or whatever it is. So that's that's an interesting wrinkle into this is, you know, for those for those arena workers, this is this is their paycheck, but it, it does fall on different shoulders who, who pays them. And I really don't think players should it shouldn't be the responsibility shouldn't be on zion williamson he's 19 years old like it's cool that he's doing it i I applaud him but the benson family is way that owns the new orleans pelicans is way way more responsible in terms of uh an ethical responsibility than say um or a moral responsibility say zion who's 19 years old right i mean think about if they said let's see i know the number the players make 3.7 billion dollars just in their salary so call it let's round number Total cap is four billion. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Because if it's about one thirty a team times thirty, something like that, right? it's called four billion dollars as a round number, and that's a and that's call it a fifty fifty split, right? So the the league as a whole is an eight billion dollar, you know, eight to ten billion dollar organization. If the league just said, hey, you know what, we're going to eat overall salary cap or like overall basketball total income, we're just going to say, hey, we're setting aside whatever that number is, a hundred million dollars, two hundred million dollars. Next year's cap, we're going to set aside this money to back pay all the people that lost income for this year. It's just going to be an NBA league-wide thing. And then owners and players, we're all just going to take a tiny little hit. right? So every cap is just going to be down. Every team's cap is going to be down $3 million, So that's just going to get split among all the players and all the owners. You know, Maybe that's a nice way of doing it, right? It's sort of the way they, they set aside money for retirement benefits and pensions and health care. Maybe there's a way to say, for this one year, we're going to set aside that money, and then millionaires and billionaires are going to split that money equally. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting that it would, it would be a league, league decision rather than the individual teams deciding what they were going to do. And like, as you said, Tillman Fertitta, who owns Landry's and, and uh, you know, casinos, the Golden Nugget, casino. the Golden Nugget yeah. Casinos, like he might be really feeling it right now and he might not have the extra cash to just like 
to pay all these employees for work that that um, you know they didn't they they can't show up for. And so he might just be like, "Hey, look, I I don't have the means to be to be throwing out this kind of cash to employees for for an, an unfortunate circumstance." And it brings me to my 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 next question for you. When you did your panel it, at at Sloan, it was investing with the bulls, Wall Street analytics and sports. Yep. Do you see big picture uh, like the Houston Rockets you mentioned earlier? Do you think big picture uh, what this will impact franchise ownership? You had Josh Harris and Steve Paliuka who uh, from the Celtics and, and Harris from the Sixers. But what about just generally speaking? Are we going to see teams potentially up for sale now because some of these ownership groups, one of the 30 ownership groups decides, look, we just took such a hit with the coronavirus, I'm looking to sell. Do you think that's going to be fallout from this? I think it depends on the circumstance of the group. So we know some teams are owned by a single person, a Tillman or a Steve Ballmer. Um, like, so Ballmer is going to have plenty of money. He's going to be fine. He's the richest owner in the NBA. Some of these groups, you look at the Warriors, there's a lot of people in that ownership group. The Celtics have a lot of people. The Sixers have a lot of people in those groups. So one version is you buy out maybe some of the weaker partners, guys that, you know, let's say some 10% guy, a 15% guy, he can't keep up. We just buy him out. Everyone else keeps up going normal. Or you do a capital call. Hey, look, we as an ownership group, we need to chip in $100 million. And so all 10 of us each have to chip in $10 million because we have to keep this thing going. So you see that kind of thing with, with, big, with big investments? Because that was one of the things that Paolo Yuka talked about on the panel. He said, look, the goal was not to put in more money, right? We wanted to put in the money once, buy the team, and hopefully not lose any money. So as long as we could break even, we were fine, and that we never had to go back to investors and say, hey, you have to chip in more. So it depends if it gets to that point, because if investors have to chip in more and they can't, then you might see some small stakes being moved aside. Remember, though, there is a guaranteed giant TV contract that's still in play, that they're getting money from ESPN and Turner, the rise of sports gambling, the international growth of the NBA, all of that still exists. And a lot of the owners I talked to said, this is a temporary thing. Look, China's already back. They're about to play games. They were off for 10 weeks. They're back. So if it just means we lost this one late regular season and we lost this one postseason and we're back to normal next year, then we're going to make all our money back. The question is going to be, though, if people are levered up in the stock market and they're down 30%, right? And they bought their teams on leverage and they got to pay those loans back. That will be an interesting, unique angle for individual team owners because some, some guys are borrowing money to pay for these teams. And there's limits, but if you've got debt and all of a sudden you can't pay that debt back because of your assets going down, that will be that will be something to be seen. But a lot of times minority owners can step in and buy shares from other minority owners. Do you think the NBA is, is more or less affected by this virus than, than other leagues like say MLB who are, it's in an off season, they're start, they were supposed to be starting up their spring training. Whereas the NFL just announced uh, the CBA has been ratified. Everything's good to go. And now you're seeing these huge blockbuster trades. Is, is the NBA uh, particularly vulnerable here? because they're just in the middle of the season and we're just about to hit the playoffs? I think the NBA is a stronger league compared to, let's say, NHL. Right? The NBA has more money than the NHL, and they're both getting hit at the same time. Right? They were both at the same point in their season. I mean, one question I was thinking about today, what if this had happened six weeks ago? Would they have canceled the Super Bowl? 
I mean, would we literally not have had a Super Bowl because of this? I mean, we just, that's something we just I think, canceled March Madness, right? Like that's the yeah, that's the that's the Super Bowl equivalent, yeah. right? It's like yeah, they I would never cancel March Madness, right? But they did, right? Right. So you wonder, like, did the NFL just luck out? So two years in a row, they had they had competitor football leagues that just couldn't even make it the whole season. This time, the XFL, for no fault of their own, just boom, done, um, done by you know halfway. So I think the NBA is in a better spot than the NHL. I think the NFL would have been in an even better spot, but they lucked out. It didn't really affect them. But okay, who cares if the draft is going to not have people? There? No, no, that doesn't matter. What is really interesting to me was something someone told me at the conference, and he said a lot of baseball owners would rather they just simply cancel games in April and May than play them without fans, because if the games get canceled, then the owners don't have to pay the players. But if the games happen without fans and the games still happen, and that means they got to pay the players. So it was an interesting little wrinkle that for a lot of baseball owners, oh, we'd rather just play a 100-game season than a 160, because we're going to save we're going to save all those games. And, you know, some guy making $16 million now only makes $10 million. Yeah. And, and that just means that they're not profiting off of those games as much as other leagues are. Each one of those games right. is not adding so much to the dotted line or the bottom line. So, you know, for the NBA, um, you know, someone was telling me that like for, for the Warriors, uh, they might make, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight million dollars a game, depending on the game yeah. in terms of ticket revenue. But for like, uh, a smaller team like Memphis or Charlotte, I don't think it's the same. So, I mean, it might be as, as little as, you know, in the hundreds of thousands rather than the millions. So it just, it, it depends on the market. And that's the tough thing for Adam Silver. What people don't understand at home is that Adam Silver, as much as he's um, leading a league, he's really trying to rally votes from 30 very different owners, from very different backgrounds, from very diverse backgrounds, different diverse business uh, backgrounds. And it's, it, this is not an easy thing. This is not an easy thing. And as much as we think that Adam Silver is leading players, it is very much his job is to be a custodian for the owners. And so that is that is a, a different thing. You know, I was when when this was unfolding, Eric, I was sitting myself like it was like Saturday and they were like, we're going to get the news was that they were going to hold a call on like Wednesday. And I'm like, how come they can't get on the phone right now? Like we can't get we can't get 30 people on a conference call um, like today. But but it's this, you know, for a lot of these owners, like this is not their primary job. This is one of their many businesses or investments that they have. And so wrangling, you know, 30 different owners, that's that's a tall ask for some people. So um, right, just look at my panel. Right. It's the guy that's a co-chairman of Bain Capital and the co-founder of Apollo. Right. They've got real deal billions of dollars at stake in their real job. And then they own a basketball team, you know, sort of to make money, but more to be a to be fun, you know, to have fun and to be the number one fan of the team they grew up with. And yet it got, especially in a world like this, if you're one of those funds, your investments are taking a hit. So you need to worry about that too. You've got shareholders, you've got investors, you've got employees that are, that are you know, on your back. So you need to deal with that as well. I bet sometimes too, it's like, hey, let's do a call on Wednesday. Because sometimes I think the NBA needs to do some research. Like, hey, get all your teams, get all your information, talk to your health people, talk to your staffers, come prepared for Wednesday. Like, I don't need to have a call on Saturday. We're all freaking out. Cal- calm down and come prepared on Wednesday. Yep. Yep. And 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 look, uh, the NBA made its decision and look at all the leagues that followed suit. You know, once once the NBA made their decision, it seemed like all the dominoes seemed to fall after that. 
oh, it was over. That was it. Once that happened, it was just shut America down, which is basically what we're seeing now. What I'll also point out, though, like you said, the owners come from different backgrounds. The owners have also bought the teams at different prices. So we think about, we talk about a Tillman. He paid $2 billion for his team. Um, we know Joe Tsai with the Nets, who had his whole Chinese thing. That was a whole separate thing he had. He's a $2 billion purchase price. Uh, Steve Ballmer's a $2 billion purchase price. Then there are, like, the bus family, who Dana for Dana spent $2 billion. This is their dad's, their dad's investment from a long time ago. But if you're just comparing L.A., Ballmer has way more money than the Clippers are worth. The Clippers could go to zero and he'd be fine. The Lakers family, their entire wealth is the Lakers. There's no outside income for them. Like, that's it. Their value comes from the Lakers. And and different teams, different people, different owners, they're all in different situations based on did they inherit the team? Did they buy the team for, you know, a nine-figure nine amount? Or did they buy the team for a ten-figure amount? How many years have they been in, in on this? How, how many years of profits have they been cashing? So that also affects your thought process. Because you think about Tillman, he's one of the newest people. So he comes in there, his GM is the one causing all the China stuff, and now he's got all these restaurants and this, and he's paid more money than anyone paid for an NBA team. So I can see if you're him, you're having more of a meltdown than if you're someone else who's like, ah, this team cost me $50 million, I could sell it tomorrow and I'd be fine. Man, I can't believe it was 10, 10 days ago. That feels like forever ago. Um, Eric, thanks so much for taking the time. And please stay safe. You're at the uh, CNBC offices there. And, and I hope um, everything with you and your family stays, uh, stays okay. And look, it's, um, I don't know the next time I'm going to see you in person. But until then, uh, please, please stay safe. And thank you so much for joining me on the, on the Haber Show. And look, uh, we will probably be doing this again uh, in a couple of weeks or as news trickles in, there'll be a lot, a lot to talk about. So thanks again. Um, and if there's a, anywhere the listeners can find your work, please, uh, please let them know. Definitely. Yeah. Just Eric Chevy, C-H-E-M-I on CNBC.com. Uh, thank you for the kind words. I hope you and everyone with your relatives and your household stay safe. And you're right. There's going to be nothing for you to talk about on court actions. You're going to be stuck calling me up every couple yeah. of weeks to podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, so keep that phone ready. And I don't know, maybe there's going to be uh, a virtual NBC uh, conference that we'll both be, uh, we'll be taking part of because it just seems like everything's going to be conference in by now. So it's going to be a blast, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Eric. Uh, thank you so much again and stay safe. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. All right. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Haber Show podcast. Huge, huge thank you to Andy Larson from Salt Lake Tribune for joining me and sharing his story. Uh, you can follow him at Andy B. Larson. Larson is spelled L-A-R-S-E-N, Andy B. Larson on Twitter. Also, thank you to Eric Shemi from CNBC. I uh, can't believe it was 10 days ago that we were hanging out in the conference room at Sloan Conference, and here we are. Uh, you can follow him at Eric Chemi. that's C-H-E-M-I. E-R-I-C-C-H-E-M-I. Go follow him and get the latest on the sports business side of the coronavirus pandemic. Please stay safe out there. And until next time on The Haber Show.